Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Faltra and welcome back to the Talking Blarney podcast where we wade through the Blarney to tell you about the real Ireland. My name is Stuart McNamara, and I'm here with the heavyweight champion of the world, Rob Cross. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Are you ready? <laughs> uh, how are you, Stu? I'm not too bad. Now, uh, I just jump in straight away and uh, apologize if there's any noise in the background. It has just started hailstoning here in Limerick, so it's going to be an interesting episode. Yes, where our weather's still been a bit... Um temperamental the last few days was it was sunny at one point earlier yeah nice and warm sunny and then back to just ice falling from the sky it is how it is do i mean it's just the way things are in limerick despite what some people have said in the last uh, two days limerick is a fantastic city uh you know has its flaws as any place does but there's no need to berate it in the press is there i mean there's some reasons too i suppose yeah but let's not go nuts um we're referring to an article in Forbes magazine written about the Collison brothers, uh, two fine Limerick men who have become billionaires with their company Stipe, the, the payment app thing, made a good bit in Silicon Valley. And a piece in there kind of was talking about their upbringing and things like that. And yeah, um, you know, don't call Limerick Stab City where, you know, we, we had a, there was a time in the past where it was a bit rough, but it's uh, we're certainly past that now. And um, that was just stank of lazy journalism. But uh, I know some of the Collisons, they're, they're lovely people. Look, I, I wouldn't say that Limerick isn't rough anymore. I mean, there are still it parts, yeah, but like pockets of the city. Everywhere has parts that are, you know, a bit rough, but the city as a whole isn't. Yeah, I think the main point of contention is continuing to call it Stab City when that was a name from must be 10, 15 years back. If, Longer, if not more. You know, when we had, yeah, when we had a, a, a bad time of it. There were there were issues back then, sure, but um, less so now, thankfully. But uh, you know, we it's hard to move past that when that's lazy trope is 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 repeatedly brought out. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's not like we don't have uh, trouble in other parts of the country. Specifically, I think we'll jump right into the uniquely Irish for this week, just to kind of give a bit more of a background. You said countries on what the hell is happening. <laughs> In the north. Joking. Yeah, so if you haven't seen... Uh, firstly... Just I, to, I should say island. Island, sure. yeah, yeah. Uh, just to be clear as well, we are aware Prince Philip has passed away and look, I mean, for, for the purposes of this, I, I, I'll i certainly say, look, any any death is a tragedy, particularly someone who was, you know, was 99, had a, you know children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, was married for 73 years to a very long time. So look, we're... Despite our differences maybe with the idea of a monarchy and historically in this this nation with the the united kingdom i i would say yeah you know, would send my condolences for it um i don't know if Stu, you know it differs from me here but uh, look you know i i send my condolences to his cousin i mean uh the queen easy to wife. get the two mixed up isn't it <laughs> <laughs> yeah especially when they're one and the same that's Rob. true anyway back to northern ireland so i think it all started was it a uh, march 30th was when it really kicked off yeah but it all kind of goes back to to brexit as a whole with the kind of the the border between the island of ireland and the uk well just say there's been kind of rioting in in primarily in belfast now in loyalist areas so of course loyalists we've kind of said before in this podcast we're talking about what's called unionists um generically in the past they've been mostly protestant that's not strictly the case but people that want northern ireland to remain part of the united kingdom would identify as british and you know that that's what we're talking about when we say loyalist here as opposed to nationalist or you know who generally largely catholic not entirely catholic of course would want Northern Ireland to become part of the 32 County Irish Republic in in a broad sense. So those are the two communities we're talking about. Again, just to clarify, with the rioting started in the the loyalist um, communities over disquiet with um, Brexit. Yeah, you know, it, it, it's it's a real strange one up there because from what I've seen, it seems to be a lot of younger people, and it's hard to tell whether they're messing around and just kind of using any excuse to kind of 
cause a bit of, well, not a bit of mischief, I shouldn't say that, but a, a bit of anarchy. Yeah. Or whether it's kind of, you know, the historical view of things being like pushed on the children and maybe the parents are kind of like, you won't get arrested if you do this, so we'll send you out. Which you've been hearing you on the, the news a lot it's, about. It's worth it. saying that t- today's day was actually uh, 23 years exactly since the Good Friday Agreement or Belfast Agreement was signed that brought really an end to the troubles and end to a lot of the violence in Northern Ireland, set up the like Stormont and the Northern Ireland Executive where Unionist, Nationalists and others of, you know, neither kind of side uh, got together, formed government, voted, put a, put a stop to this largely. And it's been shaky at times since 1998, but it's overall it's been... Uh, good it's it worked yeah largely until a couple of things recently but uh, some of the people that are out today so you hit the nail in the head right there they're too young to remember that they weren't alive when when this was signed like you and i were both very young uh back in 98 we we remember parts of it but we, I, I i don't know if poli- poli- oh, yeah, politics is really what we were into at the time but you know some of the people out in the streets now they're like geez, 16 17 18 they, they weren't alive then they're they've no direct memory of this themselves and you know it's at the surface level loyalist communities are unhappy with the um the, the way brexit has gone so i suppose without going too much into it the United kingdom voted to to leave the european union collectively uh scotland did not vote in favor of that uh neither did northern ireland 58 percent of people in northern ireland voted to remain in the european union and that was across both communities uh but the united kingdom as a whole voted to leave because england has you know, such an overwhelmingly large population out of it and this is causing divisions um you know, obviously with scottish independence there as well but because northern ireland shares a border with us here in well, ireland and because of the good friday agreement the border has to remain open so it's kind of seamless travel between north and south and that's important for not just people and their families but you know trade business that kind of thing and um people in northern ireland are entitled to both british and or irish citizenship you can have both passports or one or the other that's completely fine obviously an irish passport your European citizen then anyway now and there was some disquiet about how exactly they do a border because um, if the United Kingdom left the European Union we'd have to put a border would like be between Northern Ireland and and uh, Ireland and obviously that wouldn't go very well with the Good Friday Agreement so they had to come up with an idea that the Northern Ireland backstop as they called it today was some people would have heard during the Brexit negotiations which held a lot of things up where was well we'll have Northern Ireland will be leaving the European Union, but it'll still be in kind of a customs agreement with Ireland because the border has to remain open for peace. And there's a lot of back and forth on it for, for several, well, really a year or more. But eventually they, they reach an agreement and it was that it kind of Ireland, Northern Ireland, Ireland will still be able to have some free trade over the border. There will still be customs and things. But really the the the, the, the border is like down the Irish Sea, as they say, which there's checks on goods going from Northern Ireland to the mainland, uh, Great Britain, United Kingdom. And that's kind of where the issues are rising to people in Northern Ireland. They're they're quite unhappy with that because they see that they, it's pushing them further away from England and the United Kingdom that they see themselves as part of. And also it's it's making some difficulties in them getting certain goods. And, you know, it, they, they see it as something that the European Union and in particular the Irish government in Dublin have pushed. And they're also now kind of seeing that Boris Johnson kind of sold them out a bit. So it was quite disquiet against the political establishment on all sides now. So and in particular, because loyalist communities are, have been rather disadvantaged over the years they've you know I, i've been to some of these places in belfast unfortunately they're very disadvantaged socioeconomically disadvantaged there there's a real uh, I, someone said the other day on television 50 percent of uh, people here don't have a further education beyond um finishing secondary schools too so it, it, it's really impoverished uh lack of education and really being felt like they're being sold out now by really everyone so it and I suppose the lockdown and everything as well because of COVID, it's just all kind of come together. I mean, I think that's the shortest possible summary I could give of everything, uh, really. Yeah, I mean, you know, it, the, the the North has always been a strange thing, just like the way it was set up, the way it's gone ahead, the fighting that's happened between the two yeah. uh, the two countries and where we're at now. I mean, I think only recently the, was it the, the demographics have kind of, Yes, shifted in a way that no one really expected when Northern Ireland was set up. I think the Unionists are no longer an absolute majority there. So you know it. It's it's a real. It's never happened before, and it'll probably never happen again, except for on this one island where it is happening for nonsense reasons. But you know that's that's what you have to think of. You know there are a lot of 
people who claim who claim uh, Irish citizenship up there. There are still a lot of people who claim British citizenship, C- British yeah, citizenship oh God, up there. <laughs> British yep. citizenship. It's like a tongue twister. But uh, so, you know, like there's always going to be some argument there. And this is just kind of a, a consequence of it. I mean, I think it started in Derry and now it's been going on every night. I think the I'm not sure whether they actually did, but they said they were going to to not have any uh, riots last night Prince after uh, Prince Philip's death. But I'm not sure if they did or not. I I, I hadn't seen anything. But it like there are a number of night, officers certainly. injured and a couple are dead. There's no one dead. Yes, that I've I mean, seen. It, you know, it, but perhaps I I wasn't really. I, I thought I had heard something. No, no, anyway, we'll agree you know, to disagree. A, I, a good number I of officers, that, but okay. Yeah, a good number of officers, and even a police dog was injured, which you know really shitty but even seeing what they've been doing the petra bombs you know it, it it's back to days that we've never seen ourselves really yeah and it, it's on it's unfortunate i suppose and hopefully something can be worked out here but it, it i suppose it, it, speaking about anniversaries it was 23 years since the good friday agreement it's in a sense it, it's 100 years this year since northern ireland as a separate entity uh was set up actually in 1920 where the i am was it called the ireland act 1920 um which was to partition the country originally. We didn't accept it down the south and we ended up with a free state in 1922. But the North kind of recognises from there. And as Stu said, it was set up to be, you know, inbuilt Protestant unionist majority. They always had the say in the original Northern Ireland Parliament. And effectively what's happened is that the Catholics have basically outbred them without without putting too fine a point on it. And they, you know, it's like the whole thing in Monty Python, you know, the Catholics having all, all the children. And that's kind of what happened in the North <laughs> in, in, in kind of a way. And for the in the yeah. most recent election to the Northern Ireland Assembly, now it does use a proportional system similar to the way we use here. There's multiple members in, in a constituency. It's the, the Democratic Unionist Party, which obviously is a unionist party, is still the largest party, but only by one seat over Sinn Féin. And for the very first time ever, the, the unionists didn't have a majority of seats all the unionist parties together didn't have a majority of seats in the assembly. The nationalist and other uh, groups uh, collectively outnumbered them. So now there is still, of course, a power sharing of government between nationalist um, unions and other parties at the moment. It's five of them. Um, but it, it, things aren't looking good for the traditional unionist parties, I think, um, is what polling suggests. Yeah, I mean, you know, as I said, you know, it, the numbers are changing. The demographics have definitely shifted uh, towards the Republicans and it, it's it's just a crazy time. I mean, I watched a little bit of a Claire Byrne on RTE from like a month ago where she was actually talking to Artana Shelley over Adker and Mary Lou MacDonald about what what the plan would be if Northern Ireland were to have yeah. a vote to become part of the Republic. What would that be? Would it be like would Ireland not be Ireland anymore? Would it be its own new country? Yeah. Would we still have the tricolor? Would we still have a Ronavian? Would like I think they even mentioned like would, but in in deference to the I think it's like a, a million people up there who claim British citizenship, citizenship. again. <laughs> yeah, uh, uh, if in deference to them, would they even call the Taoiseach the Taoiseach and the Tarnished Day? Like would would they have a new name rather than yeah. keeping the 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 Irish? version of the name so it, like it's a whole thing it is that uh is a really interesting time for ireland I mean, going look, forward um we've i i think it, i would accept that if it if we do join together there would have to be certain changes to be made to accommodate people but you know it i i personally think it's a that's a conversation to be had down the line i don't think we're ready yet to have a border poll and i think there's a risk of calling it too early because it's going to be rather divisive and Look, I think in, in, in my own personal view, and I'll, I'll stress personal view, I, I think it's something that maybe in the next 10 years we might see a border poll, but there has to be a lot of groundwork done before it can happen on both sides to say what a new state will look like or what 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 are people in Northern Ireland being offered by, you know, joining up with Ireland that they don't have in Northern Ireland at the moment. And there's a couple of issues like around the NHS, the fact that most people in Northern Ireland work in government jobs, there are issues with pensions as well, issues with like people who want to just only have British citizenship outside the European Union in, in an island like that then and things like that. And even like we, we were saying there, so like our national anthem, our, our tricolor, which is supposed to represent unity between the two communities, but doesn't anymore. And, you know, things like that. So I, I there's, there's a lot to be done before we can, I think, even get to the point of holding a poll. But hopefully, I, I suppose, 
we can find we can get the the violence to stop in Northern Ireland now is the most important thing. And there's a lot of senior people that are coming out there to like you know people who were involved in these troubles back in the day going out there take literally taking the rocks and stones out of these little kids' hands and telling them to go home. And these are the type of people that have respect in the communities. And you, you know you don't you don't mess with them. Sort they've done everything and they're saying like go home and to your mother and stop causing trouble. Along with all the religious leaders, literally standing in front of the walls in a barricade. And I think that's a the kind of statements you need now to try and get it done but the British government really need to to get the finger out and do something here they sacked the one decent the Northern Ireland Secretary uh, Julian Smith um, in, when Boris Johnson came to power a man who literally got the, the, the government in North back together and was rewarded by putting in Brandon Lewis who was a, a Brexiteer who was the man that stood up in Parliament and says yeah we're breaking international law in a specific way about Northern Ireland so I think they really need to take a look at themselves and uh, before they can be this arbiter of peace in the north but anyway we'll uh <laughs> yeah i think the uh the the major worry though is uh, and is the pendulum swinging the other way because like if you think back to when northern ireland started and the ira became uh, a big source of conflict there they were trying to fight to to get the north back because they were the minority now that we're seeing the unionists become the minority as they're they're place in Northern Ireland shrinks, will they become more aggressive and fight harder to keep their place in Northern Ireland? Well, it's hard, it's hard to say, Stu, but I think a lot of this is anger with the establishment that we're seeing now, as opposed to that. But look, there, there are far many more issues here that we you know, don't, don't have enough information to go into. We're really just going to giving our own perspectives and what we can see down here in, in the south, uh, looking northward. But really, you know, I, I, plenty of people from Northern Ireland to like follow online to that we can give a far better view on this uh, than we can but we're, we're just kind of saying what we think and what we see and uh, that's that's all we can do really yeah so i think we'll leave it there uh and into a little more of an interesting topic so rob you have a report for us today yes do well today uh, time of recording uh saturday is, is will be night one of wrestlemania and uh by the time this comes out it'll, it'll be after uh wrestlemania so yeah I, I i don't have the results yet but sure look Right. So what we're going to talk about in the spirit of that, Stu, is we're going to talk about wrestling, but the Irish connections to it. And um, there's there's quite a few. There's quite a few. So this will be more of a report as opposed to an actual review of anything. But we'll start off anyway, Stu. And um, wrestling is always been kind of part of Irish culture. It's, it's, it's very much our native martial arts almost. And it's a very particular type of wrestling called collar and elbow wrestling. In Irish, uh, Collier Agus Illa, literally Collier and Elber, or uh, uh, Brillahecht, uh, um, which I'm probably mispronouncing, but look, it seems that Collier Agus Illa was mostly what was used. And it's a style of what's known as jacket wrestling, which is, which is a type that's kind of, they used to sort of talk about a few other uh, native forms of wrestling around the world, and particularly in Croatia and uh, parts of Asia. There's comparisons to it, but still, the whole idea of collar and elbow is that well you have um one hand on your opponent's collar or kind of the side of their neck and the other on their elbow and you both have to keep your grip uh respectively at all times and you're trying to take down your opponent to get something else besides the soles of their feet uh on the ground so you're you're using kind of pushing and using your legs to hook them and things like that as opposed to like using your arms to take them down as you would see in other form forms of amateur wrestling like you know greco-roman and that type of thing and this is basically our our martial arts, and there it was. Um, it said that uh, the mythical here, Ku Cullen, who was uh, we talked a little bit about in, in this podcast before, was not just a great hurler, Stu, but he was also a fantastic wrestler. And uh, one of the occasions, he was mocked by a uh, undead, um, perhaps a, I suppose a zombie or something. It doesn't say what type of creature it was uh, for being a bad wrestler, and apparently this uh, really infuriated him. So there you go. There's um, records of this in churches in Ireland going back to the 9th century AD. So the, the 900s, like monks were putting this on walls and churches and monasteries, that this was a very important part of of, um, of Irish culture. And um, the, like if you were getting a fair or a gathering or anything like that, you'd have like the two two lads going in there and they'd be wrestling for quite a while because unlike the modern wrestling, as we'll, we'll get into a bit later, um, there weren't exactly time limits on this day. It was like... Whenever you got the guy to the ground, that that's how the match was over. There wasn't um, <laughs> there, there wasn't like a timeout or anything like that. It went on as long as it had to go on. Uh, in some 
the, the more kind of modern cases where we actually have more records for there, there's cases of bouts going on for uh, two or three hours even. Um, people said the longest was about 12 hours. I don't know if that's true, but that's that's what some information has said here. So th- th- this kind of spread around a lot. It, it really got to America as well with due to Irish immigra- immigrants. It said Abraham Lincoln himself was a practitioner of it as well, Stu. Um, so I don't know if the perhaps the US Civil War could have been settled between himself and Jefferson Davies in the ring, but who, who's to say? Yeah, I mean, it, it's interesting, actually. It sounds a bit like... a. Jiu Jitsu, or at least Brazilian Jiu Jitsu, yeah. that I'm aware of, just that kind of locking in, you know, uh, and dragging the opponent around when you're both kind of holding on tight like that. I, from what videos I've seen of, of Jiu Jitsu, anyway. So you could say that uh, Irish Jiu Jitsu came first. In a sense, there, there, there's comparisons to Judo, actually, as um, kind of a more modern assessment, because there's a bunch of holds that, and kind of ways you, you would take some takedowns, you, you put people down that were, were categorized, and they, people kind of use, uh, kind of use some judo throws as kind of the closest equivalents to them being described. So there, there's a list of techniques that came out in 1900, uh, and it, it, it talks about, let's see, I get the flying mare, the ankle throw, now I'm giving the English translations here, of course, uh, like the knee throw and stuff, but it, it offers comparisons to uh, judo throws and I suppose to be valid in BJJ as well about about how you do it because it's just like the closest thing that that's kind of comparable to it. Now there are other forms of similar wrestling that did exist. I think Croatia had as a very similar version. I think they called it uh, uh, grab and belt wrestling. Certainly comparable, but th- this was a very dominant form of um, sport in Ireland at the time. So it was actually used in the the Taltin Games, which we which did come up actually in, in the most recent film we we uh, reviewed as well, Stu. So th- this this was certainly part of it as well, along with a bunch of the other um, sports that, that took part. So um, there there you go. Uh, they they would have, they didn't do any collar and elbow wrestling in that Disney movie, unfortunately, but uh, perhaps they'll save that for the sequel. Well, they did some kind of wrestling from my memory. Oh, sorry, they did. Yeah, but it, it certainly wasn't the collar and elbow type. They, it was, they were doing more of a catches, catch can wrestling. Um, you, you wouldn't be kind of grappling on the ground like that. If you knock your opponent to the ground, you, you win. You're going to be going around in, in circles for a bit. Really, the, the height of this kind of in, in America, um, when it got kind of outside of here, um, really was after the, the Great Famine, it kind of really died out. So there were some practitioners in America, uh, John McMahon uh, or, Mc, or McMahon, or McMahon, depending on what pronunciation you do. Uh, no, no relation to Vince and Co. We'll uh, be dealing with them a bit later. But he was an Irishman that went to America, or potentially he was born in America to an Irish family. It's a little bit unclear. Uh, but he was kind of the main guy in America that was practicing this and kind of going to people who had the more traditional kind of Greco-Roman style, where there's no holes below the waist or the kind of catches catch can, which is sort of the. Um, the the more kind of style you'd see now, the real kind of wrestling style that you'd see, like the Olympics with the guys kind of, you know, doing waist locks on the ground and things like that and sort of popularized this idea. But he, 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 what he would do is he would go around in a traveling circus and challenge people to like take him down for money. And that it was kind of the start of popularizing this form of wrestling as an exhibition uh, going around the United Kingdom and that spread to parts of the UK as well but he he was kind of the first big uh, John McMahon now the first kind of big draw in kind of wrestling in certain parts there because he, he'd, he'd turn up in the circus in town as like can you take down big John McMahon big big Irishman you know and get um Get 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 a get a few quid out of it, or get get even respect. You know, be like, are are you a tough guy? Of course you think you are. Particularly at a time where after the Civil War there was a lot of like uh, former soldiers who were trying to like, prove their worth, and he'd he'd be taking them down. But um, yeah, this this was really the the origins of the kind of spectacle of wrestling. Really came out of collar and elbow, and some of the people that would go around in these these uh, traveling circuses and things like that that um would challenge people to kind of do it. Uh, P.T. Barnum, of course, the famous uh, circus man, the greatest show on earth, um, also employed McMahon and a few other people. But um, he, I think he, from what I can kind of see, he generally preferred the more theatrical parts of his repertoire as opposed to an actual legitimate contest, if you will, at the time. So 
so that's kind of uh, part of it. There wasn't really a world championship in collar and elbow per se. It was kind of like you'd sort of know who the toughest guy was in your area. And really, by the, the, the very start of the 20th century, it had largely died out, unfortunately, particularly in Ireland. But the practitioners like McMahon in, in the, the United States and all that had retired and had left it and really Stu it's 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 declined so much and it was because of the famine that um it did and there were attempts to revive the Talton games um after the Irish Civil War and uh, four of them were actually held at uh, the same years as the Olympics the idea was they were trying to catch people coming back to to America from the Olympics in Europe and it it surprisingly worked <laughs> a little bit but when De Valera came to power in 1932 he, he was associated with the previous Commonwealth government and they decided not to continue it um, also, they were a bit poor at the time as well, so they couldn't really afford to. But um, there is some good news in this, too. They, they, it's actually been kind of revived in Germany, in Heidelberg, of all places. They have a unified rule book and they're they're using it. Now, it is more based on an American rule set, but people have said this is the closest thing we have to it. So the, that's a very brief summary of our of our native martial art. Anyway, the, the uh, collar and elbow wrestling, and you, you do still see it in professional wrestling matches in the sense that when they lock up at the start, it's usually a collar and elbow uh, lock up is is a very common way to start it. So that's uh, that's one of Ireland's contributions to modern wrestling. But um, I suppose before we go into kind of we move into more of the professional wrestling side of things now. But I suppose. Well, well, I am cognizant that we're not we're not talking about um, the history of professional wrestling here because that would take ages. Um, I'll, I'll kind of briefly just mention it in, in the sense that well, how it, how it became kind of um, from sports to sports entertainment, as as uh, some some people would say. Um, you re- you really get to like the the late eighteen hundreds where the different styles of wrestling kind of come together. The, the the kind of collar and elbow had really kind of delved into the whole catch wrestling catch all wrestling where it adopted a bunch of styles together into kind of more of a free form sort of a thing uh, not too dissimilar to the freestyle wrestling you see in the olympics at the moment the united kingdom has a variety of styles of wrestling as well for everything from very similar to the collar and elbow to much more grappling ones um the collar and elbow is actually compared to uh, shin kicking stew if you've ever heard of it which is uh, something that happens uh up north in Yorkshire, I believe. I think I have. Uh, I guess it's kind of similar to what we do in an old game of hurling, but no, shin kicking is basically um, you'd hold someone in kind of the collar and elbow sense, but you, you you sort of just kick each other in the shins as hard as you can till one person says quit. And this is like a proper sport up north in England. Um, I advise people to look it up. It's actually quite fascinating. They would apparently use um, like oil up their legs so that you'd have to get a direct hit and use like uh, pointed steel things in the end of their boots. So this wasn't a this was a proper man's game like back in the day as they said so but but anyway there were were comparisons to it um but eventually you have this catch wrestling which kind of covered really all the other styles that kind of came out of these islands and in contrast to greco-roman wrestling which was like you know no holes below the waist all very above board this is the the original wrestling that the Greeks themselves were doing in the original Olympics. And then eventually the, the kind of, you get people that kind of went around beating all the people in a particular style of wrestling to kind of become sort of regional champions. Eventually it kind of turned into like world champions. And eventually um, a fella called uh, George Hackenschmidt, um, he became the first recognized world champion in wrestling. He beat the best guy in Greco-Roman in kind of a, who was recognized as sort of the the best champion that, and he became really unargued as the yeah, this is the best wrestler in the world and he had the original world championship which most of the things that like WWE championship and the NWA one at the moment would claim they they come out of but that's not strictly true but anyway but it, it's you get to the 1910s and a few people promoters some of them were Irish um kind of realized that you know this wrestling it didn't really even if you use the a kind of more system based on different uh, rounds like you know best of five rounds something like that which is more prevalent in the united kingdom versus kind of more of a fight to the finish as they called it where you know there there must be a winner more revenant of the the collar and elbows we were talking about there it 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 wasn't particularly good because a good wrestler you would just take someone down to ground and they'd be trying to pin their shoulders and it'd just be kind of two men rolling around in the ground for potentially an hour or two Stu, and that's not um you know <laughs> maybe the most exciting thing to watch in contrast to boxing which was the the other main kind of draw in a lot of these places like you know, we're talking about like new york chicago boston the, this is the places where where this has become very 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 big 
and they kind of thought we could maybe kind of use more theatrical holes and things like that and it's it's really a a, a group of uh, gentlemen kind of got together and were like they, they weren't saying to like fix it yet but they were like the guys like can't you do like kind of more colorful things like you know kind of more flashy holes and like jump around a bit kind of you know be a bit more energetic not just on the ground and you know have a bit of personality so the kind of seeds of professional wrestling had been sown at this point and um you know it was all about you have like your 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 faces and your heels your face is a good guy heel is a bad guy we're, we're kind of coming out and unfortunately a lot of uh the, the people has had to go fight in world war one and that kind of changed things when they came back you know this is really when you see the the official world champion Frank Gotch at this point, who no one disputed was that he retired, and then you finally see people getting together and the, the Goldust Three, as they were called, uh, Ed Lewis, Billy Sandow, and Tootsmond. If you remember Tootsmond for a bit later, got together and started having guys with personalities coming out there, flashy things as they called it, and. It, it, they invent like the whole day of tag team wrestling as well, where you could have things like, oh, what if the other one of the bad guys like distracted the referee and his partner can like choke one of the guys um, with a rope or something. And anyway, that kind of comes out of it. So around that time, wrestling becomes gradually becomes predetermined in the 1920s to the point where by about 1925, professional wrestling in its sense is predetermined but still the guys doing it are legitimate tough guys too i mean and the the idea is that um they're legitimate amateur wrestlers as well like if you try to beat one of these guys legitimately they'll beat the shit out of you like um the idea kind of was that the, the guys that were running this were like old tough guys who back in the day wore real wrestlers so they were like we only want our world champion or someone who recognizes world champion to be legitimately able to wrestle you know, because that that was the kind of idea. And anywho, it kind of it kind of gets into it. But um, at this point, there is still kind of a large one world championship that's recognized and it gets into the 1930s and, you know, it, it starts playing up. So people are still legitimate wrestlers kind of going into this and there is a bit of gimmickry. But we we, we find ourselves to, you know, it, it's interesting what you're saying. And, uh, you know, one thing that came to mind was you're talking about, you know, P.T. Barnum and he had. The, the Irish doing the collar and elbow and that. And you'd you have to imagine that part of what became professional wrestling had to be, you know, if you're showing these these Irish lads doing their collar and elbow every night, yep. you know, traveling from town to town, you, you wouldn't want them to necessarily get injured. So you can see how that might have led to the kind of the, the way that they work and performing wrestling where you're not injuring the other person but it seems like you are so that they're, you're putting on the good show oh yeah of course without injury i will say like i'm skipping over a lot of the history of professional wrestling if um i'll do i i there, there's a if, if people want to get a more insight thing i'll recommend a book that well my girlfriend got for me um called i'm sorry i love you uh written by a, a british gentleman and it's it's basically the entire history of professional wrestling up until now and Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. It's... it's- absolutely fascinating i love it but i think you're kind of right there Stu. i mean it was originally this is the toughest guy we have you know can you legitimately take him down but you're you're kind of right as well the kind of flashier parts of the circus would kind of overshadow it so they were like can't we incorporate a bit of that and eventually it was just becomes can it just be predetermined you know because that way you'd be guaranteed to have a, a showman um someone who was charismatic who could talk who could hold himself up well as as your champion as opposed to someone who you know had all the talent in the world as a wrestler but wasn't exactly very flashy so um i, I suppose that kind of that kind of goes into it but still the the, the the real height of Ireland in professional wrestling 
it, it's it's uh, it's kind of down to one man in particular. Now there have been people of Irish American origin at this point, like McMahon, for example, who you know it was in the collar and elbow game. But uh, in the professional wrestling world, it comes along to a big man, Dana Dano. O'Mahony, or Mahoney, as uh, some people in America call him, who was from down in uh, Ballygahab, County Cork. And he was the very first Irish uh, world champion. He was the National Wrestling Association's world champion. This was, at the time, recognized as the world championship in wrestling and would be up until uh, about 1948. So this has, like they say, like an, an effectively undisputed lineage from... Um, the original championship that Hackenschmidt won. So it, it has, it's effectively directly come down from legitimate wrestling to this point now. Uh, but he was still a big, big man, would batter you, like had legitimate wrestling skills. And, and he was it. He was, a, you know, an Irishman that went out there and did it. He was, um, he, he emigrated to America, had, uh, you know, some skills in a, in a few other aspects. And he, he met a Boston promoter called Paul Bowser, was his name. Um, whether he had stolen a princess, I can't say, Stu, but uh, it doesn't say anything about him being a, a fireball-throwing turtle, but who, who's to say? As long as he doesn't uh, get beaten by uh, someone named Mario. Yeah, well, well, funnily that you said that, Stu, because <laughs> Bowser, he, was, uh, he wasn't based in Boston, and he had, you know, this idea of, if I, you know... <sighs> If I can get like an Irish guy as a wrestler and make him really popular and try and get him to be world champion, that's going to really deal with all the Irish immigrants that are here. Because like, yes, Boston's a huge Irish city. You know, most of the people in Boston's time would have been of Irish origin, effectively. And he was like, if I can get some Irish, they'd be really behind him. Like this big, strong Irish immigrant, the fighting Irish coming over here. That's something they could get behind. And he was even thinking back in the day, wrestling was very territorial. Like you had the National Wrestling Alliance was... In, in charge overall they were if you will the, the, the governing body of the world but really the united states and it kind of carved up everywhere it's like all right you're, you're in new york and you know connecticut you're in boston and then like okay you, you can get texas and oklahoma and you know you're over there in california so everyone had their own territories and they as long as they recognize the nwa world champion as a world champion they could have a guy who was the top champion in their area but they wouldn't be like going over to like he wouldn't have been going down to tennessee trying to you know take on their guys so in order to get big in boston he had to have really an irish guy and then you know he could be like oh i could have him like go against uh maybe like an, 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 Ital- an italian american because that was kind of the rivalry at the time that we've started talked about before like the irish and italian immigrants in new york in particular there was like a healthy rivalry there kind of between them over getting jobs and things like that and you know, so having kind of an, an Irish wrestler versus an Italian-American wrestler was sort of a, you know, something that would would, would draw a crowd and have a bit have a bit of crack there. We, we even saw it a little bit in um the, the awful film Far and Away, where uh, Tom Cruise's character gets in the boxing match against the Italian lad. And then it, it's him losing that that gets oh, yeah, him kicked yeah. out. And that was a legitimate contest, but it's the same kind of idea. But anyway, back to uh, Paul Bowser. He was like, I got to get me an Irish star. And he was thinking back, there was a fella, Will, Will Muldoon, who don't have time to get into, but he was um, uh, the original kind of Irish guy that in that part of the country that would have gone around doing the strongman competitions and been a legitimate wrestler. And he was looking around and he, he talked to a few people, couldn't. And he's like, oh, they looked the part, but they didn't have the skills. And he offered a fella called Patrick O'Callaghan, who was a two-time Olympic champion, but he's like, nah. Um, some limerick connections there actually to him, but that's a different story. And eventually he 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 found O'Mahony and uh, kind of got into him. And his first match was against a very famous wrestler called Ed Strangler Lewis, who, inv- who was the guy that kind of came up with using chokeholds and, you know, kind of the sleeper hold in wrestling. Really big guy. And obviously he lost to him because of course he would. It was just the start to it. Bowser was impressed enough to say, I'm going to give you a con- contract. And it was for th- like, thousands of dollars at the time which is during the great depression it was kind of finishing up like this is a man who's just basically come off the boat from ireland to work over here it was only his own real skill is he has a bit of wrestling um know-how and he's um you know he's kind of just built like a brick shithouse and he's been offered this because he gets behind him and if it doesn't make him into a big man it does he wins 48 consecutive matches debatable how real some of these are it's said that some of the matches were legitimate at the start and then it kind of goes into the whole predetermined aspect but you know these guys wouldn't break you know kayfabe is the whole idea about um in wrestling like kayfabe is like saying of course it's real why wouldn't you say it's real so they never broke kayfabe in the sense by acknowledging it was predetermined or fixed 
Um, so obviously there's, there's a touch of, um, you know, them kind of playing up to that. But but certainly O'Mahony, you know, was popular. He had the Irish crowd in Boston behind him and it built up and it built up. And he, he took on a lot of the guys, you know, Luthez and the very famous wrestler Orville Brown, uh, Bronco Nagurski as well. Another one of the great guys there. And it, it got him up and up. And eventually it was like the National Wrestling Alliance were like, we we got to this guy has um this guy has something here like he's so popular why don't we make him world champion and he can go around to the different territories then and defend and like he, he'll always draw an irish crowd in like boston new york he's sorry he's drawing a crowd in boston but if we if he's world champion he can go to new york and take on their top guy and they'll draw a load of irish people there if he goes to chicago he'll draw a huge irish crowd there too we could send him out to toronto as well and draw a huge irish crowd there in montreal there's plenty of irish there too so they were thinking this is a great idea and you can just put him against like the italian guy in 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 new york or or get like someone who's British. Oh, that'll really kind of rile up the tension. So they they had that idea. And in 7th of October, 1935, Stu, uh, he got married to uh, Esther Burke, which is very nice. And only a few days later, then he's in a match against Ed Strangler Lewis, the man he had his very first match against who beat him. At this point, he's the only person who's ever managed to beat him in the ring. And Ed is at this point, the NWA world champion. And if he puts his sleeper hold on you, Stu, it's all over. But Dano, Dan's the man. He does it. He beats him. Two out of three falls for the world championship. He is the world champion now. And the crowd go wild. This is the Irish champion now in Boston. This is the god amongst men. And he does it. And Bowser, his promoter, is just like, this is, it's, it's, it's done. It's, it's turned into a massive thing there. And it works out fine the first day. But then things don't really work out for whatever reason. And now we, we don't have time to kind of go into it. He starts getting booed at matches and it's like not it's not going too well. And eh, he's kind of mocked for his lack of wrestling ability compared to these guys who, you know, would tie you up as, as in a pretzel like this. So he was big and strong and had some wrestling acumen, but he wasn't like, you know, one of these real technicians like you know your modern day Kurt, An- Kurt Angles or Daniel Bryan so you know against a real good guy called it you know as a shooter he wouldn't it wouldn't have worked out but eventually Billy Sander who was a rival promoter said oh, I'll, I'll give five thousand dollars if he takes on my guy Everett Marshall and well they they were kind of a bit skeptical about it because they were worried that you know this would turn into a legitimate contest this would be like it turned into a shoot as they call it a, a real wrestling match and Dano Dano can't beat a guy who's like a proper wrestler like this so ugh, to make a long story short um he does lose in the end and uh yeah unfortunately a, a Canadian wrestler called Ivan Robert taunts him during a match um knocks him out and pins him and he be- and he becomes world champion then um and it makes him an instant star but then O'Mahony kind of goes on to being turning heel and stuff like that and things and other bits and he's recognized as champion in some places and it it gets kind of messy at this point there's kind of splits in the belt and to make a long story short he officially loses his world championship to a fellow called Dick Shaggett in New York in Madison Square Garden which is the the big place in wrestling but you know there were things like that there's um there's things that this match turned real at at points turned to a shoot Shaggett was legitimately hurting a Mahoney who was trying to you know get disqualified and and get out of the match basically and eventually himself and uh, Bowser kind of ran out the door is kind of what some people say but but that's it but Amani was still recognized as champion by the AWA the American Wrestling Association in Boston uh, kind of as you know they said oh he's still our world champion but really he was just a regional champion at that point but he was um he was still very popular to Irish people uh, definitely the other crowds had turned on him but in the end still he decided just to return home to Ireland and uh you know, at the age of at the age of thirty eight, he was um he'd, he'd done everything, um he'd, he'd he'd been in the army as well. He'd been world champion. He'd drawn huge crowds. He's he'd shown people that this, as I said, the 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 ethnic um crowd for wrestling was there, and it was kind of making some people stroke their beards and think maybe there's something to this more than just having characters. There's something to provoking a crowd like this, and it was because of Dano like that. But he moved back to Ireland in uh, 1950. And, well, very unfortunately, Stu, he, he died in a car crash in Port Leash only five weeks after he moved back at the age of only 38. So um, taken far, far too soon from us here. But one of the lasting things that he had in wrestling, Stu, was his finishing manoeuvre. 
would you have any idea what move he used? Because he, well, he wasn't a very technical guy. He, he wasn't going to put you in like a hold, but he was very strong. And you have any idea, Stu, what his finishing maneuver was? Well, I'd ask, was it like a kick or was it a, a punch or a lock? Well, no, think, think more than that. Um, it, it wasn't named after him directly. But it was after part of him. It was the Irish whip. Oh, I suppose right. everyone thinks how the Irish whip in wrestling is you just whip the guy into the ropes. He bounces back and that's it. But his version of the Irish whip was, oh, I'm going to whip you into the ropes. And then I'm basically going to take your head off with a forearm. Um, he, so it was ba- the version that he did was much more akin to a, a clothesline or Okada's rainmaker. So it was a quite, quite, a, quite a strong strike, which built up to his strength. I'd be doing him high tackles anymore. Right? No, no, <laughs> unfortunately not. But that that's his, his lasting impact to the world of wrestling, the Irish whip. And um, that's really the story of the first uh, Irish world champion, Dan O'Mahony. Now, I stand to be corrected on some parts of that. Like I said, there, there's different versions of the story here and even different matches. He lost his world champion, things like that. So look, I did the best that I could with the, the limited time I had. Had, so <laughs> I, 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 I stand free to, to, to be corrected there. But uh, as, as far as I can see, that's um, that sort of um, the, 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 the real story of Dano. And who knows how big he could have been had, had, had he lived a bit longer. Like the um, the real kind of wrestling boom was the 1960s. He could have been one of the old guys kind of, you, you, you know, teaching people how to do it. Um, very much like Toots Mond, who we, t- we spoke about a bit earlier, did. But uh, he wasn't the only big wrestler at the time, Stu in america that was actually irish of course there were um a few other people as well one of them was uh steve crusher casey now this was a, a man from a very illustrious sporting family from uh, sneem down in county kerry and uh steve was he was originally a roar and he only kind of got into professional wrestling as his um you know it's kind of a secondary thing his uh one of his elder brothers actually they, they were from a, a very big sporting family down there and they were actually all bare knuckle boxers in that sense, but they also rode as well. And, um, but they were, they were involved in a lot of things and they, their family was actually the steam tug of war team. And they actually won the Munster tug of war championships in, in 1932 at the Talton games. And this kind of got him known as kind of being another big strong man. And he actually went to, along with a few of his brothers, uh, Paddy, Tom and Mick, and they qualified for the Olympics in rowing. Um, but, this was actually the issue back in the day, Stu. The Olympics was an amateur uh, thing, and that was the whole idea behind it. it. Was like this is just this isn't for professional sportsmen. This is for amateur people who can go out there and prove they're the best in the world. So if you if you were like a professional boxer, Stu, you couldn't take part in boxing in in the Olympics at all. If you received money for being a rower, you couldn't. But no, these guys had received any money for rowing, so it was fine. But Steve had he he'd wrestled two professional matches in wrestling beforehand. And that disqualified him and his entire family from being rowers in the Olympics. And he, he was rather disappointed by this, unfortunately. But Steve and his brother Paddy, who was also on the rowing team as well, had done a bit of it. They, they joined up with the British amateur wrestling team and they kind of got built up and they kind of went professional then. And he debuted as a professional wrestler and he beat the the Canadian heavyweight champion Paul Duveen. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, in a non-title match. And eventually he meets a promoter called Paul Bowser, Stu. Uh, which you might remember <laughs> from from uh, the story of Dan O'Mahony. And Paul was kind of saying, I've got this big other big Irish fella in the States. What if I were to bring over Steve here, who actually is bigger than him? He was six foot four. He was, you know, big Stu. He was about, uh, Jesus, 240 pounds as well. He was a lot bigger than Dan O'Mahony. And he had legitimate wrestling skills as well from a proper background. So he was like, this guy kind of has it all. So he, he brought him over to, to Boston and he actually wrestled Dan O as well. Now, he didn't win. They actually had a draw after five minutes, five five rounds, sorry, in the European style. But uh, he didn't give up on him. He's like, he actually has a good match. He would have beat him if it was a real thing, probably. So eventually, uh, Casey does get awarded a championship. He's going to get stripped because he's out of the country and by the AWA and things like that. But but anywho, um, it does say that he does later fight Dan O'Mahony in a match in Munster. Um, it doesn't say if it's a title match. It's, it, I can't find any further information on this, but apparently it went for 18 rounds and uh, they wrestled each other for over 90 minutes. So fair, fair play to them. Um, <laughs> uh, would, would, wouldn't have mind seeing that in Limerick, Stu, I'll tell you that. But uh, Casey did become the AWA world champion in Boston after Dan O'Mahony. So he, he wasn't the recognize the world champion per se, but in Boston, he was the main champion, if you will. He, he beat a... a, a he did lose it to Marvin uh, Vestenberg, but he he beat Gus Sondenberg, sorry, to to get a second reign until he lost to Ed Don George. And he, really, 
he did get another chance again in 1939, but he dropped it to the, the French Angel, which is uh, not the most intimidating wrestling name I've heard, Stu, but what, what are you going to do? But he, he kind of had it. He, he still would do other wrestling things. He apparently defeated the boxing champion as well and issued a challenge to the famous Joe Lewis, which didn't go anywhere because he was like, You're, you, that's not a real sport. I'm a boxer. But anyway, um, but he did challenge for the British Empire Heavyweight Championships, too, which was a, an interesting turn of events, I think you'll say. So he went for the British Empire Heavyweight Championship, which I suppose is a an interesting title for a uh, an Irishman to be going for against uh, Earl McCready. He, apparently, it was a no contest; they 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 didn't win. Uh, but he did get a final reign as AWA champion, where he beat French Angel again. And at this point, he actually joins the United States Army and fights in World War Two. And um, he, he he keeps his championship while fighting. So that's uh, that's kind of interesting. <laughs> I suppose if, if someone shot him during the war, do they become champion? I don't know how that works. But uh, in, in in the end, he he um he retired in, in 1947 at the age of 38. Thankfully, unlike Dano, he he did live longer than that. And he got into the pub business there, Stu. Uh, he opened a liquor store and pub out in Nantucket Beach in Massachusetts and basically stayed there. And he actually had a very long life. He he went back to Ireland then uh, into Sneem County Kerry and he died at the ripe age of 78 in 1987. His younger brother Paddy actually survived until 2002 and um, he, he he actually accepted his induction into the equivalent uh, Irish Sporting Hall of Fame on his behalf after his death. So that was that was quite nice anyway. So that's the, the only other kind of I, big Irish wrestler that was there at the time, Stu, Steve Crusher Casey. And and that's really kind of it when it comes to Irish wrestling for a little bit. I, Irish wrestlers, it should have been said. But uh, cer- certainly the idea, like people like Paul Bowser and other were thinking like, there's definitely something to having like a an Irish wrestler and getting that Irish crowd behind it. And the idea kind of stuck there. Or like other people saying like that as well. But you know, get the whole ethnic kind of crowd, as they called it, behind. It hadn't gone out of place. So they were certainly still thinking about that. And uh, that kind of brings us on to the next stage, Stu, about um, more behind the scenes a little bit and uh, wrestling promoters and things like that. And, you know, Stu, we all know that if, if you think who people who run wrestling companies, the first person you probably comes to mind is uh, Vince McMahon, wouldn't you say? Oh, yeah, definitely. And obviously, you can, as you can, you may tell by the name there, Stu, of Irish origin, you'd, you'd, you'd be shocked to hear. Galway or Clare, depending on exactly, they said different things, but McMahon is certainly a name known out in out in West Clare. And uh, it, go, it goes back a fair bit. It was originally uh, Jess McMahon, who, Roderick was his full name. He came to America in the early 1900s. Now, it might have been his father came and he was born there or he was born in Ireland. It's a little bit unclear, but certainly uh, Jess McMahon, Vince McMahon's, the current Vince McMahon's grandfather, he kind of started it off. And it was actually in boxing they, they originally started off and stew before they went into this uh, wrestling thing. And by the time that he, he'd kind of got into it, it was... You know, it was at that stage where it was still largely real, but the kind of more flashy aspects were coming into it. And um, he kind of was New York based in Connecticut. And, he, you know, he didn't really he wasn't doing anything crazy. He wasn't like lighting the world on fire. He was really more of a boxing promoter. He kind of got the foot in the door and his son. Uh, Vincent J. McMahon, he kind of really had more of an interest in it. And he set up the, the Capital Wrestling Corporation and kind of did a few other bits. And eventually he says, you know, this NWA, this is a new NWA now, as opposed to the other one, isn't really doing much for me. When I set up my own world wrestling organization, uh, a worldwide wrestling federation, do the WWWF. They'd eventually drop one of the Ws. But uh, thank God. Yeah, they, they, it's a bit of a mouthful. Uh, but he forms with um, Tutsamond, who you might remember earlier as one of the, the other wrestlers as well. And they form uh, the WWF. And um, yeah, it, it, it becomes sort of the big thing. And he kind of has that old Irish thing in there because he kind of really realizes from the other people he's known. It's like, you know, if I'm in New York, it's basically you got three kind of large groups of people. You've got you know, the Puerto Ricans, the Italians and the Irish. And he was like, if I can get someone from each of them in my wrestlers from that, it'll be like, you know, that's the way to draw a crowd. And if, you know, have, get the friendly rivalries going and things like that. And that's pretty much what he did. He makes the first big champion he has, is, well, not the first champion, but the big one is like Bruno San Martino, who was Italian, legitimate badass. He fought against the Nazis in Italy in World War Two. Crazy, crazy guy. Uh, really big, but he was champion for seven years too. <laughs> <laughs> at the start in his first reign you know this massive guy eventually loses but he, he tries a few other things out but eventually he puts it on Bob Backlund who wasn't really Irish but he had a big shock of red hair and he was you know very very pale 
legitimate kind of wrestler as well. Very kind of straight, ba- make me baby face, kind of always a good guy. Did kind of get the Irish crowd there, but Vince was getting very sick at this time. And his son, Vince McMahon, uh, you know, Junior, the current Vince, was trying to take over. And his father did, said, OK, fine, but don't go national. Don't go against the NWA and buy things out. And he obviously he did. And he made WrestleMania and everything took out there. But he couldn't have done it without a certain star stew. Um, a certain Hulk Hogan, could he? Of course not. Uh, but of course, Hulk Hogan isn't Irish. Uh, Terry Belay is his real name. He's Italian-American, but he was given the kind of Irish name because it was like, you know, they needed an Irish, even an Irish star, even in the, the 70s and 80s to kind of make something big. So that that whole thing kind of persists then. But I think you can't really talk about Irish and wrestling without talking about the impact the McMahon family had because WWE is like massive. I mean, WrestleMania is the... The, the Super Bowl, the the World Cup of of wrestling, as far as I am and many other people are concerned, and you know you don't become a billionaire, you know, through, okay, at times questionable business practices w- without being somewhat successful here and building up stars. That you know, myself and Steve were both big fans of. I grew up watching is no mean feat. And it was always kind of nice to hear McMahon and kind of a, an Irish kind of twang there in times uh, as part of it. So really, I think the, the success of the Irish in wrestling in America in particular is certainly recognised by how successful the McMahons have been, wouldn't you say, Stu? Oh yeah, I mean, they're absolutely giants of it. Yes, yeah, so that's, uh, you know, talking about promoters there, the behind the scenes people that built it up in America. But, you know, People, we kind of forget it a little bit these days as much, but uh, British wrestling as well was very big in the, the 60s to the 80s. Uh, it was featured on World of Sport, which was uh, on ITV, I suppose, at the time, and it, it would give kind of uh, shout outs to different sports. And it, it had kind of the, the character driven aspects of American wrestling with some of the people that had come over there. But it, it really took off. And, you know, you, you say it to like um, people in Ireland of a certain our parents' generation. You know, about what wrestlers they want growing up and yeah, you, know, you might get Hulk Hogan or, or, or Macho Man Randy Savage but you're very likely to get like you know um, Big Daddy Giant Haystacks Kendo Nagasaki who were always um, British wrestlers so it, it certainly had a big impact as well and obviously as it was mostly in England Stu uh, of course there were Irish people there and people taking on Irish personas one of the most famous in the early days was a fella called Mick McManus now his real name was William George Matthews he was uh, you know, British, but he he was always seen as a bad guy. Kind of putting on the name McManus was kind of a very subtle thing that they did over there. You know, with um portraying the Irish as kind of oh, they're obviously the bad guys and they're a bit ignorant and a bit stupid and they do silly things like that. And he was kind of the first, really the only rest you'd see on television that had any Irish connection. So ironically, the Irish fans ended up quite liking him. He he had a famous catchphrase as well: "Not the ears, not the ears." He had very heavily cauliflowered ears, and he, he really hated when people touched them and. It kind of became like the, the good guys like Jackie pa- Paolo would always kind of like, you know, give him a whack on the ears and he'd cry out with that and the crowd would love it. But a few people I've read, uh, Dara Breen in one of his books actually wrote that that was the very popular call in the playground when people would like, be play fighting, not the ears, not the ears. So he was kind of the, the, the first uh, big person kind of using the whole Irish idea over there in the United Kingdom, but he wasn't himself Irish, but he certainly was popular with it. In order to get the first kind of big Irish uh Anglo-Irish, whatever the term you want to talk, you have to talk about the other big name there, uh, Giant Haystacks. And big he certainly was, Stu. Um, how big do you think this fellow was? Well, I mean, he's got to be 300 kilos, maybe even more. 300 kilos? I, I, Jesus Christ, Stu, you, you, do you mean 300 pounds? <laughs> Probably, yeah. Whichever one's the... American way they fucking counting. I just think three hundred kilos. My God, is this is this a man or a sphere? Like, <laughs> well, he's a bit spherical. He's a bit spherical. Fair enough. Well, he was about one hundred ninety six kg or or, or four hundred thirty four pounds at his at his height, um, and about six foot eleven, uh, to two 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 point over two meters. Anyways, this was a huge man. He was, and his real name was Martin Ruan, and he his family were. Um, his father was from uh, Ballyhonas County Mayo. So he, he was really kind of Irish and kind of grew up there. And he, he used a bunch of um, original names using like uh, Luke McMasters and things like that uh, back in the day. But Giant Haystacks is kind of what it was. And he was seen by a lot of people as the first big Irish star. And he eventually became a heel, a bad guy and things like that. But he was still kind of beloved. And it was one of the more other aspects of it. The, the British wrestling at the time would kind of use more... Apologies for the ice cream man who has decided to come out on this now sunny yeah. day. I wouldn't mind some ice cream. Sorry, what was I saying there? 
Yeah, but he, he was a big star there, Stephen, had the Irish kind of thing. But it also kind of goes into the uh, whole slightly racist aspects of uh, British culture at the time. You'd be shocked to hear. Obviously, I don't know where this is coming from. As we discussed last week in the podcast, they investigated themselves and found no systemic racism. So it must have been a, it must have been something else. But, you know, they had like wrestlers of uh, Caribbean and African origin and, you know, ethnicities uh, being the bad guys. And they also use the Irish as bad guys. But they had like eventually giant haystacks against big daddy who was this another big fat guy which was the style of wrestling that they had and uh for for their most popular guys and somehow worked and he was also the promoter's brother uh shirley crabtree was his real name um (laughs) instead of i I think i can see where they picked big daddy but he was like he'd come out to do with a, a big union jack uh with a load of kids holding his hands and a big top hat on very much like john bull the the personification of england he was against this you know untamed irish celtic kind of warrior coming out with his big unkept beard and long long greasy hair and this big fur coat that he'd wear over you know with um Irish managers and things like that and it it was a very kind of subtle way of doing kind of Ireland versus England people people who you know people understood what they were getting at here that was the great rivalry in in British wrestling in the 80s and 70s giant haystacks versus big daddy they had a massive match in 1981 which literally last all of three minutes (laughs) and they could because they couldn't wrestle each other but uh, it, 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 you know, it drew the crowd and the crowd loved it. It, it just worked. And that's really the, the high point of it. But certainly in contrast to the way some Irish characters are in American wrestling in, in British, it's in Britain, they were very much the, the bad guys, the heels at this time. And in America, they were generally the baby faces that the crowd in some areas loved. So there's quite a contrast between the two of them, not just in style of wrestling, but also the way they, they went after this. So um, that that's kind of a, a brief summary of that. But finishing up kind of stew as well um you know we should probably mention as well a bit about the mexican wrestling lucha libre and um it's a bit different from other forms of wrestling wouldn't you say particularly because of the whole mask thing but what stew what if i were to tell you that the mask thing actually came from an irish wrestler <laughs> I, I wouldn't be surprised for some reason wouldn't be surprised well it was a fella called uh cyclone mckee corbin james massey was probably his real name but he was known as like um you know cyclone mckee there's a, 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 a spanish versions of his name i can't say but he's also known as mr x or the gray mask and he kind of would go down to mexico and fight in a mask and eventually they had this idea he's like oh he kind of has the right idea there and it kind of comes from him, the whole idea of of doing it in a mask. It really kind of starts in the 1930s and CMLL, which is one of the oldest wrestling associations in the world that's still going. They kind of took up his idea and he then had the idea, oh, what if I put my mask as a wager against someone's hair or their mask? And like, you'll know, have mask versus mask as a kind of a retirement match thing. And it worked. So I, I won't go into the full history of that because... I, I don't know enough about Lucha Libre, being brutally honest. And also, my I don't have much Spanish, so probably not the thing for me to talk about. But in, in a nutshell, there's a lot more to it. I invite you to look it up. But um, an Irish-American wrestler, potentially Irish, it's a bit sceptical about where exactly he was born, did popularize the idea of masks in Lucha Libre wrestling down in Mexico. So that's uh, another little tidbit, too, that Irish people have had an effect in wrestling in. So I think that uh, as best, as as, as short as we have, and by short, I mean, this is probably a longer podcast already than (laughs) we've we've done before. That's about the gist of what I can do about the Irish impact in wrestling. Of course, there's plenty of Irish wrestlers now. We've got Becky Lynch, who was born right here in Limerick, did grow up in Dublin. Ooh. Uh first won the first uh, all female main event of WrestleMania as two champions. She's obviously has a little child now called Rue, uh, having been married to Seth Rollins. So congratulations to Becky. Can't wait to see you back soon. Uh Finn Balor uh, from Bray, who's been Universal Champion for one day. Unfortunately, at time of recording, lost his NXT championship to Killer Cross. No relation. And of course, Seamus, who's still going around and had a feud with you know Drew McIntyre while he was WWE champion and is a former multiple time world champion himself, Royal Rumble winner king of the ring has had many other championships really has had a hall of fame worthy career and for someone who's a quail gore from dublin isn't isn't too bad Stu. and uh, to give a shout as well to velvet mcintyre who was another female wrestler in wwe in the 1980s who was quite popular um definitely worth shouting out as well so i i think that's about the gist of it if you'd like to hear me talk about wrestling in the future i'll see what i can do but I think that's about as, as as short as I can make it, but I hope I hope, hope you enjoyed listening to it. Anyway, uh, what did you think, Stu? Anything that struck you as a bit odd? Or... Yeah, that was fantastic, Rob. I mean, you know, it, like it's always interesting to to hear about how the Irish have just kind of 
squirreled their way in, into everything. Like we're <laughs> always there somewhere. You know, we have we have an impact on something wherever we go. And it, it's really nice to know that no matter what it is, you can find an Irish connection in there. So, you know, and it's good to see some of us are still doing it today. It is. It, it's great. And I mean, I, I, I think um, I didn't expect to find as much as I did when I was researching this and directed the stuff about Dan O'Mahony. There's some great uh, blog posts about, I think it was one called just the tragedy of Dan O'Mahony. I'd recommend people to look up and, you know, if I had more time and we did longer form podcast, I, I could have you know talked talked a bit more about it. But I'm quite busy. I got out of a, a five hour college thing right before we recorded this, so I'm quite tired today and uh, trying to get pensions out of my mind. But but anyway, but uh, but uh, that looked. I think that was about the best I could do to kind of cover it. And hope hope you liked it, guys. You know, if if I've made mistakes and errors in any of those parts, I f- feel free to correct me. <laughs> rob, rob, rob. Mistakes and errors are what we're known for at the Talking Blarney podcast. Who's the current women's world champion? Is it Glenn Close? Probably. Yep, there you go. Very probably. <laughs> Either her or Meryl Streep. Ah, who can tell? Who can tell them apart? <laughs> yeah. So next week, I believe we'll do the Australian Irish joint TV show, Foreign Exchange. Oh, I have memories of that, Stu. Yeah. So we'll do the first two episodes of that for next week yeah cannot wait for it thanks very much for listening guys hope you've enjoyed this this is uh you know one of the reports i've done we might still let me do another one for a while but anyway um <laughs> probably, probably not but thanks for listening guys if you have any feedback you'd like to give us you can find us at twitter at blarney pod or feel free to email us at talking at gmail.com for me it's goodbye Slow and we'll see you next week hold up what was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mm. 